Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. Those of you who know your Bibles know that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the account of, well, it begins with a genealogy, then the account of the birth of Jesus, a little bit about John the Baptist, and then in chapter 3, we have an account of what happens with John the Baptist and the baptism of of Jesus. Then beginning in chapter 4, we have the temptation of our Lord Jesus, and I ask you please to look down to chapter 4, verse 17, where we read, from that time Jesus began to preach. So here we have the beginning of our Lord's ministry, and he sets the standard for all that he will preach, and what is his first word? Repent. Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he has this dual message here. Repent, and there's heaven. If you look at chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, just down to verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he preaches, Repent! And he preaches that there is life after death, eternal life for those who repent, for those who are broken in spirit and humbled before God and come to know him as Savior. There is heaven, life after death. Now the word repent that our Lord Jesus uses here in the Greek literally means to change your mind for the better. It is that you come to see things differently. You come to see things God's way. And so maybe you're going through life and you have this view of life and you have this view of things, and then all of a sudden your mind is gripped by the gospel, your mind is gripped by the truth of God, and you see yourself as a sinner and your desire is to then Turn from that. Your mind is changed, resulting in a turning of your life. This is what Jesus begins his ministry by saying. Repent. You abhor your past sins and seek to change and follow God. People, if you know your Bibles, you know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Right? Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Who is the promised Messiah to be? The promised Messiah was to be, if you remember your Christmas hymns, and the Messiah, and those passages from Isaiah. He is to be God incarnate. A virgin shall give birth to a son. And he will be God with us. So Jesus is God incarnate. The Messiah was to be God with men. God with us. So, if Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, he is eternal God. God among men. He is the same God 
in the Old Testament who has now come to dwell with men. Yes, he is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. In the New Testament, we find God revealing himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here is the second person of the Trinity. But he is God. There is one God, three persons. And so Jesus, this promised Messiah who has come, is eternal God. Eternal God with us. The same God of the Old Testament has now come to dwell with men in the New Testament. So if that is the case, if this is the same God, we ought to find what he does and what he says, what he declares in his teaching, in his preaching, to be consistent with what we would find the Old Testament revealing God to be. You understand what I'm saying? If the Old Testament reveals God like this, and Jesus is God in the New Testament, God incarnate, he will not do anything that is inconsistent with the God already revealed in the Old Testament. The God revealed in the Old Testament who then promises to one day come and be Messiah. He is the same God, and what he says and does ought to be the same as the God who promises in the Old Testament. Let's see if that's the case. We're engaged in a study on the fundamentals of forgiveness. What God has done and what God will do even in your life to forgive you. To forgive men. His saving work. His atoning work. His forgiving work. That takes place even today in the hearts of men and women. As he saves them by his grace. The fundamentals of forgiveness. We saw in the first area that we called the essence of forgiveness. That which needs to be forgiven. And that is our sin. And we're all sinners. We all come into this world in need of forgiveness. And we've gone on from there to our second broad area, which we've called the existence of forgiveness. And we're beginning to look at what God promises. And then we will look at what he does. But so far, we've only been seeing under the first subheading, the alacrity of God that is, his eagerness or willingness to forgive. And under that, we've only started with the God depicted in Scripture because God today gets a bad rap from unbelievers and atheists and God-haters who blame him for being a cruel God, a mean God, an unloving and an uncaring God who is the cause of most of the wars and death in the history of the world. To that we say, they are wrong. That is not how God displays himself or depicts himself in the scriptures. And we have been looking at several texts which reveal what he is really like. Exciting texts. Encouraging texts. And if 
I have been using this series on forgiveness merely as an excuse to preach on these texts. I hope you'll forgive me. Because these are powerful texts in the Old Testament. We saw from Psalm 103 a picture of a God who pardons our iniquity. That He does not deal with us according to our sins, but puts them away from us as far as the east is from the west. From Psalm 130, we saw a declaration of the forgiveness of God that He does not mark iniquities. Otherwise, we would not be able to stand. And then last Lord's Day, we saw from Isaiah chapter 1, the offer of God to cleanse us from all our sins. As we saw in the text that He lays out His case to the nation of Israel and to you and me. That we are all sinners and have sinned in many ways. And His case, as we said, was airtight. He shows them their sins over and over again and that they are guilty. Yet He says, Come to Me. Come to Me. And though you are guilty and your sins are as crimson and scarlet, I will make them white as snow. I will purify you and make you righteous. I will pardon your iniquity and forgive your sins. Our God is a compassionate God, a forgiving God, a God who does forgive and cleanse and purify men and women. Those who are, as he even said in that text, willing to turn from their sins will find God forgiving of those sins. And now today, we are going to see a consistency in this depiction of God in the Old Testament and a consistency with what Jesus preached in the New Testament as I invite you to turn with me now to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel and chapter 18. The final of our Old Testament texts that we will be looking at in this series, showing once again a picture of God as He reveals Himself. I say this again. You don't need to listen to these fools on television, on the news, who lie and say that God is this or that. You don't need to listen to false preachers who say that God is like this or like that. Liberals. Atheists. The truth of the matter is you don't even need to listen to what I say to you. But you do need to listen to what God says to you from His Word. And this, again, is the God of creation. The living God speaking to you through His Word, revealing Himself to you from the Scriptures. We have here God, a powerful chapter of God, setting the record straight regarding sin. And the focus for us is going to be verse 22. 
all his transgressions, that is the sinner, all his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. And so after having seen a picture of God who pardons our iniquities, a declaration of forgiveness from God, the offer of God to cleanse us from our sins, here we see the promise of life from the God who forgives sins. Now I want to stress as we begin this, something that we say over and over again, that no one is saved by their works. It is not as though you can earn heaven. And so as we look at this text, don't think that he is saying that if you turn from your sins, that is what saves you. Because no one can turn and become perfectly obedient to God. It can't happen. It isn't possible. No one can suddenly become perfect. So he is not saying that because you repent, that is your salvation. That does not happen in Scripture. What he is talking about in this text, as we have seen over and over again, even as we saw in Isaiah last week, it is a matter of your heart. Is your heart right with God? Is your heart desirous to do the things of God? Has God so changed your heart or your mind? You know, we talk about the Old Testament, I should say, the Scriptures often talks about the heart. But the heart is a muscle that pumps blood. And so you can change that to your mind. Is your mind right with God? Yes, your emotions, your heart. But is your mind right? Are you seeing things properly? Has the Word of God caused you to see yourself as a sinner and desirous to turn from that sin to follow God? That's what's being spoken of. The heart. The matter of the heart. There is no salvation by works. Not even in the Old Testament. No one was able to save themselves by keeping the law. No one is able to save themselves by works. It is a matter of the heart. Now, with that in mind, let's pick up a bit of the context here. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say the context. It's very important when you understand a Scripture passage. You little ones need to learn this early. The context is what has already been said in the chapter prior to the verse. In other words, that which is around the verse, that which is being spoken of, where the verse comes from. Very seldom are there verses in the Bible that come without a context. You have to know what God is saying prior to this to understand what he's saying when you look at a verse. That's the context. So we want to pick up the context, and by that I want to ask you to look back to the beginning of chapter 18. So here, chapter 18, 
And we see beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, This again is the word of God. Heed what he says. And he says to the nation of Israel, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. You know what? That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Here's what is being spoken of. What, what it can also be translated is, is the father has sinned so that the son is then smitten. The father has sinned, but the son is smitten. In other words, the son is punished for the father's sins. The son is punished for the father's sins. Now, they taught this throughout much of their day, but God sets the record straight as he says in verse 3, As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And then he says this, The soul who sins will die. God is saying to the nation of Israel then, this great truth that all the souls of men are His. All the souls are God. He created you. You know what this is? You are responsible. You are going to give account to God. We find this language even in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer says that God is the Father of spirits the father of souls he is the father of souls all souls are his your soul is not your own god gave it to you and when you die when you die your soul returns to god he gave it to you god breathed there in genesis chapter 2 god formed man from the clay, the dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You are created body and soul. God gave it to you. When you die, the body goes into the grave, but the soul that God gave you returns to God. All souls are mine, he says. That includes you. Even you little ones. Your soul belongs to God. And that means that you will give an account to God for your very soul. For your spiritual state. For the way you think. The way you talk. The way you live. Because your actions come from your soul from your inner being, from your thoughts and your heart, as we've seen already. From your heart comes forth the issues of life. 
your soul is going to have to give an account to God. Now, look again at the text. If you look here in verse 4, he says, All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And then he gives this great doctrine that we hold to as Christians. The soul who sins will die. And what he's saying is, you are responsible for your own soul. You are responsible for your own life. You are responsible for your own sin. You can't blame your sin on your mother or father. You can't blame your sin on your husband. You can't blame your sin on your wife. You can't blame your sin on your school or on your church or on your pastor. Your sin is your sin. My sin is my sin. God is not going to send you to hell for my sin. And God is not going to send me to hell for your sin. We had a man that came to this church for a while who believed that people were going to go to hell because we didn't go to them with the gospel enough. There are people all around us. We need to be going out to them. We need to be reaching out. We need to be going to them and preaching to them and sending. Otherwise, it's our fault that they go to hell. Yes, we do need to preach. Yes, we do need to bring the gospel to everyone. As we are going, according to the scriptures, we bring God's truth. But nobody is going to hell because of my sin. Nobody is going to hell because of the shortcomings of this church even. You go to hell because of your own sin. The soul that sins will die. It's nobody else's fault but your own. You give account to God for your soul and for your sin. And you sin because you want to sin. Not because your husband makes you. Not because your wife makes you. Not because your pastor makes you. Not because your brother made you or your sister made you. You sin because you want to sin. It's your sin. And you will give an account for your sin. You know, that was the first sin. Remember? Adam and Eve in the garden. And they sin and God comes to them. And Adam, what does he do? Well, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. And Eve blames the serpent and God. They both blame God. It's your fault, God. If you didn't give me this wife, I would never have done it. It's your fault, God. This created serpent here made me do it. You cannot blame others, and you certainly cannot blame God. Your sin is your sin. And notice that he says that, the soul that sins will die. That's not speaking just of physical death. Everyone dies physically unless the Lord returns before uh, you die. Everyone will die. Physical death is not the scope of what's being spoken of. He's speaking again of eternal death. Death that comes 
after you die is punishment eternally for your sin. The soul that sins will be punished through all eternity. That's the dying. The soul that sins shall die, shall be punished for all eternity in what we commonly call hell. And it is a little commonly mentioned in this church because it's biblical. I want you to know you're responsible for your sin. And if you're not saved from your sin, you will spend eternity in hell. The soul that sins shall die. Now, in this text, God goes on to give several examples. He gives examples of righteous men and wicked men, particularly focusing on the Father and the Son. If you look at verse 5, But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines and so on or lift his eyes up to idols, This man does not oppose God and does the good things. That one will live. But, verse 10, if there's a violent son who sheds blood and who does uh, any of the things to his brother, that one will die. He just goes on, and I can't take the time to go through all of these verses, but he shows that a father who is a righteous father shall live, a son who is a Wicked son shall die. If there's a son who's a good son, he's not going to die because of his father's sins. Your sin is your sin. That's the doctrinal message from this text. Your sin is your sin. As he says in verse 13, he will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. It's on your head. Your sin and your punishment is on your head. And as we said, it speaks of the reality of punishment for sin. His blood shall be upon his head. He shall experience eternal death. He speaks of the soul and eternal death. I just can't help but think of all the weeks we spent looking at the fact that we are all sinners. We are all lawbreakers. We all sin against God. And therefore, we are all in danger of eternal punishment. Hell is no laughing matter. Hell is no joke. Hell is not funny. And hell is real. And this is what God is warning men, that hell awaits those who remain in their sins. So if you can take anything away from this text today, take this. You're a sinner. You're responsible for your sin. And if your sin is not forgiven, you will spend eternity in hell. The one who sins is held responsible for his sin. And the soul who sins shall die. Now, if you would, look at verse 20. This is where he sums it up. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. 
nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. That's it. It's up to you. You're the one who's responsible for your sin. We're all sinners. We're all guilty, right? However, verse 21. But, you know, I have spent weeks and weeks, I have done the same thing pretty much. I've tried real hard to get you lost. I've tried real hard to make sure you realize your lostness. Your sin against God. Because that's what God does in the Bible. We have begun our consecutive reading in the book of Romans. And what did Daniel read this morning? Unrighteousness and sin. For the next two and a half chapters, it will be the same thing. Paul made sure he got everyone lost. And then he told them of the love and the mercy of Christ. God here! Make sure you understand. You're lost. You're sinners. And then, verse 21, but in contrast to that, that's what that means. In contrast to what has come before, if you, the wicked man, turns from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his righteousness which he has committed will not be remembered against him. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced He will live. I want to bring out four words, four points from these two verses. The first word is repentance. God gives hope here. In contrast to the utter depravity and your wickedness and your lostness and your your damnation in hell. In contrast to that, God says... If the wicked man turns from his sins, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, what is that? Repentance. Turning from sins. Turning from iniquity. Turning from unrighteousness. And who will do that? Will the man who doesn't care, will the man who doesn't care about God turn from his sin and in his unrighteousness to now suddenly seek to follow and please God? No. A man left to himself will never do that. It has to be one who is touched by the word of, the, of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this speaks of repentance. Turning from all his sins which he has committed and observe my statute and practice justice and righteousness, good things 
right things, biblical things. Progression is given here from being a wicked man who sees his sin before God, who understands that I have sinned before a holy God and I am unworthy. I am lost. I am exactly as you have described. A sinner. Worthy of judgment. Worthy of hell. And from that, he progresses to be one who seeks and strives to turn from what he was like to one who would then Please God in his life. Turning from all his sins and striving to follow God in the ways that God has prescribed. Being one who is at the very heart of his being willing to turn from his sins and then do the work of God. The fruit of repentance. Jesus called on men to repent. And here the same God in the Old Testament says, Repent. Turn from your sins. Notice he says all your sins. Turn from all your sins. Come and follow me. The same repentance that Jesus spoke of. Consistent in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I ask you, and I call upon you, as Jesus called upon men, repent! Is this a picture of you? Has this ever happened in your life? Have you ever seen yourself as a sinner before God? And then be willing to turn, recognizing that you are lost and recognizing that you are in danger of eternal death. And I turn from my sin. God, I want to turn. I don't want to be lost. You know, my wife and I, when we were saved, we didn't have all the language. And pretty much that's what we said. God, I don't know what this means. But I can see from what we've read in the Scriptures that we are not right with you. We are not followers of you. We are sinners. And I don't want to go to hell. God have mercy. Has that ever happened in your life? God have mercy on me. I want to live for you. That's repentance. Become willing to turn from your sins. To leave your sins. Again, it's not that repentance ever saves anyone. But it's what God begins to do in the heart and the life of a man or a woman. A boy or a girl with whom he's having dealings. I want to turn from my sins. I don't want. To go to hell. The second word found here is that God offers pardon. Pardon. He says in this verse, If you are willing to turn from those sins and observe my statutes 
and practice justice and righteousness, he will surely live and not die. That's pardon. That's pardon of your sin. You deserve death. That's what he said. You deserve death because of your sin. The soul that sins shall surely die. You've sinned. So you deserve death. But he says, I will pardon you and you will not die. You will not die. And so he then goes on to say, and all his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he practiced. Pardon offered by God for your sins. And in fact, he says in that text that your sins will not be remembered. Your sins will not be remembered. Now, what does that mean? You know, I have people who tell me that, you know, God, God won't remember any of my sins and he'll forget my sins. That's not what the Bible teaches. How can God possibly forget what has happened? God is God and God cannot, does not and will not forget anything ever. God's not going to forget what you've done. But what it does say is that your sins will not be remembered against him. In other words, when it comes to the day of judgment, God is not going to bring up your sins to condemn you to hell, as he will a lost person who is unwilling to repent and turn from his sins. That person, God will bring every single sin, every single charge against him and rightfully condemn him to an eternity in hell. But not you. Not the one to whom he gives a pardon. You see, the pardon means your sins are not going to be remembered. They're not going to be brought into court and used against you. He says, I will not remember your sins against you. But what I will remember is your righteousness. Now I must say this, and this is a preview of what we will see in the coming weeks regarding what Jesus has done and what Jesus does to save men from their sins. His righteousness... The very righteousness of Christ, which is pure and spotless, complete sinlessness. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. So that when you stand before God, God sees the righteousness of Christ. You think, I am unworthy. I am unworthy to be in the presence of God. I am unworthy to be pardoned of God. And you are. I am unworthy. We are all unworthy. But Christ doesn't look at your worthiness. He doesn't look at your unworthiness. He looks at His Son's righteousness. And then you are righteous enough to be pardoned 
by God. Pardoned by God. Those sins will not be held against you. Not even one. All of my transgressions. All of my sins. Which I have committed and which I will yet commit. Are pardoned by this God. This is a great God. This is a wonderful God shows us that we're unworthy sinners, and then says, but I'll pardon your sin. I won't even remember them. I won't bring them up against you in the judgment. Isn't that what you would want? I ask you to think with me for a moment of judgment day. And you stand before the God of the Bible some of you may think, well, there is no God. There is no judgment. I'll never stand before them. Yes, you will. What will he say? What will you say? If you think you're going to go before God and say, well, I'm worthy. I did all this good work. I, I worked in the church and I went out to, to, uh, uh, to feed people in Calcutta and I did all this stuff and I earned my salvation. No, you didn't. Because you cannot earn salvation. You're unworthy. But God will look upon you and you shall say, I am a sinner. But Christ has paid the price for my sin and has given me a pardon. I plead His righteousness. And upon that you are accepted into heaven. Upon that you will not die. And what is that? That's our third word. Forgiveness. You're not merely pardoned. You're forgiven. The God of the Bible is a forgiving God. If your sins are no longer held against you, you are forgiven. People need to know these things. People need to know that they're lost and in danger of judgment so that they can cry out for forgiveness. Appreciate it when they have it. Look over a few pages to chapter 33. See this very, very similar language used. Chapter 33, verse 14. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness. He shall surely live. Very same or very similar language. 
his sins will not be remembered against him, and he will not die. How is this possible? Well, look over just another couple of pages to chapter 36 in this very familiar passage because this is what God does. To one who is a sinner that He draws to Himself and deals with in His mercy. Verse 26. Moreover, I will give to you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. First of all, what is somebody with a heart of stone? Dead! Dead! But he says, I will put into you a heart of flesh, a new heart within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. But he says, I will give you a new heart and put in you, within you, a spirit, a new spirit. That's where that spirit of repentance comes from. A God who deals with you, changes your heart towards Him. And as you were once an oblivious sinner, you now are having a heart that beats towards God. And you want to please God. That's the one that cries out to Him for mercy because He has put in a new heart. Look, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians, taking this into, again, the New Testament. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. This is a very, very popular text. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. What are the old things? The sinful way of life. The sinful life. The unrighteousness and the wickedness. They pass away. But now new things have come. That's a life being led for God. A life being led to please the God of the Bible. Now go back to our text in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18. The last word that I give to you, the first word was repentance. The second word was pardon. The third word was forgiveness. And now, I've said it many times already as we've looked at this text, the fourth word is life. It says at the end of verse 21, If he keeps my statutes and justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he committed will not be remembered against him. But because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Why would you not want life? 
Why would you not want eternal life? As death spoke of eternal death, this speaks of eternal life, spiritual life with God in glory in heaven. Why would you not want that? Why would you stay in your sin, in your lostness, and your rebellion against God when God offers you pardon? When God offers you forgiveness? When God offers you life? Life through Him. Is this not what Jesus said? Repent, for the kingdom of life is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. Repent, turn from your sins. I offer you life eternal. This is the offer of the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament. The God of the Bible is the same. And the God of the Bible is a gracious and a compassionate, wonderful God, a forgiving God. Even as he declared in that passage that I read to you from Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities. God of the Bible, the true God of the Bible, is a great and wonderful forgiving God. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There is a balance. It is to those who are willing to turn from their sin and to live for God through Christ Jesus. The offer of forgiveness and His new life is open to all of you today. Come. Come to this God. I close by looking at the next verse in this text. Verse 23. Where God Himself says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And of course, the answer is no. Now, don't take this to mean that God will not be glorified by the condemnation of the wicked. This is not somehow saying that all of a sudden God is mamby-pamby and uh, he is not the just God of justice. That's not what this is saying. But what this is saying is exactly who he is. A God who is compassionate. A God who does forgive iniquity and transgressions and sin. A God who has mercy and pity upon the fatherless and the widow. He is a God of compassion. And the offer of pardon and forgiveness is open for every one of you today. And it is open to you because He sent His Son out of love and compassion to pay the sin debt that we owe, that we would have life. Oh, come, taste and see that the Lord, He is good. Call out to Him for mercy while there is still time for mercy for you. 
Come to Him today and know His grace. Know His forgiveness. Let's pray.